0: It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWSM. This is our weekly show where we pull together uh, some of the award-winning journalists who cover the East End, and we do a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's local news. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27East.com. My co-host is Bill Sutton. He is the managing editor of the Express News Group. Uh, Good morning, Bill.
1: Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And
0: our panelists today, we have Beth Young, who is the editor of the East End Beacon. Good morning, Beth. Good morning. Good to have you. Uh, Denise civiletti who's the editor of Riverhead Local. Hey, Denise. Hey, how you doing? And Oliver Peterson, who's the managing editor of DansPapers.com. Hey, Oliver. Oh, hi. Good to have you. Um, so let's talk about uh, the the big um, story this week about the redistricting plan uh, for the local region, the first district, uh, congressional district specifically, um, Denise. They finally released uh, what. What happened was they they hired. A special master. I love that title, by the way. I would love to have the title of special master. I don't, I just, (laughs) you deserve
2: that that title, Joe. It
0: seems like somebody's 13 year old came up with that title, but he was (laughs) the special master. master Yes. Who, uh, he's actually from my hometown of Pittsburgh, from Carnegie Mellon University, and a redistricting expert who came in to clean up the mess that was created with the redistricting maps and essentially looks to us just at a glance like he kind of reset the first district to pretty close to the way it was before. Right. Denise.
2: Yeah. Uh, pretty close. Indeed. It looks like, I mean, I was examining the, comparing the map of the existing district with the, the map that he's proposed the judge is supposed to be um, finalizing that today. Right. I mean, uh, Friday. Yeah. Correct? I think so. Uh, yeah. So that we'll know if that, that these proposed maps by the special master are uh are actually the ones that are adopted. I can't imagine that they're not going to be, although there's been a flurry of filings uh, by uh, various interest groups objecting and wanting to have intervener status and all that stuff. But, you know, they've got to get this settled. You know, I mean, the the primary is going to be, what, August 23rd? Um, It's already
0: affected the timing of the of the primary.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It got postponed from June 28th to August 23rd. So Um, But, yeah, it looks it looks pretty similar. There seem to be some kind of minor variations on the western end of uh, the district. And um, it has it went from, you know, the the maps that were adopted by the state legislature and signed by the governor uh, gave a decided advantage to Democrats in the first district. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that was just coincidence, but um, <laughs> they, uh, this actually puts it back. And now there's a slight edge for it's uh, so like I give a slight edge to Republicans, uh, the Republican side of things. So we'll see what happens. Uh, you know.
0: Yeah, it's still still a little bit undecided. Beth, uh, yeah. you know, so you've been watching this district for years and it's it's been a swing district for years and years and years, Beth. and And, you know, it looks like it's going to remain that. Uh, yeah. the, the 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 breakdown now, if we look just at, at uh, presidential voting in the last election, the Democrat, I mean, we should talk about the, the swing here was significant. It went from a couple of percentage points in favor of Donald Trump to 11 percentage points in favor of Joe Biden. But with the Democratic maps and those were seen to be gerrymandering. So now it swings back. about what it was before. And this has always been a district that's bounced back and forth between the two parties.
3: Yeah. And I think we're going to see more of that because there's a lot of mobility here now. People aren't really staying. A lot of people are leaving. A lot of people are coming here. They bring different politics all the time. Um, And I I think it's going to be really hard to predict at this point. Um, Does the new line include Stony Brook University and the old line didn't? That's, yes, that's true. I, I believe that's true.
2: Oh, or am so, I thinking of the Senate map? I think, that's the, be, I that think that's the Senate, Senate map. map. That's the Senate okay. map. One thing that's like, I think, significant impact of, of what the special masters map is, is going to be on the Democratic uh, primary side of things, because right. um, it, it looks like Jackie Gordon, who was the second congressional district candidate uh, in twenty twenty um, and, you know, his name recognition and some political clout. Right. Um, she lives in Copeg in the town of Babylon. And she has said that if she's not a resident of the district, she's gonna, she's going to run in the district that she's a resident of because uh, you can't. As long as you're a resident of the state, apparently you can run in any district. Yeah. Yeah. This is something I <laughs> learned
0: this week. I, you know, <laughs> learned yes, something I, new. You, know, you, you learn something new every week. And I had no idea that you are not required to live no. in the district you represent in Congress. I York learned
2: York. that when when Nick LaLota was appointed, you know, anointed the uh, Republican nominee by uh, Suffolk County and uh, Republicans, because uh, you know that was I was like, wait a minute, he was in Amityville, yeah. and that even with the district lines going way west into uh, you know eastern Nassau, he still was outside of of the first congressional district, and that's when I learned that that was the case, and yeah. he said that oh you know. I'm,
0: he but, says he's mo- he says he's moving in. He, he says said he's going to move, move in
2: into the district. But he also said, you know, if, if I'm elective. just outside of I'm just outside of the district. And now he's not just outside of the district. But I haven't heard any uh, announcements <laughs> that he's not going to be the Republican candidate. Uh, there is a primary there as well, though. So
0: so, Oliver, I, I've always loved the the term gerrymandering. And we all learned uh, of were reminded that it's a combination of. A Name and salamander, because so many of the districts that were drawn up looked like salamanders and and the first district, as drawn up by the the Democrats, fit the bill for that. It was kind hmm. of ridiculous and i think I think uh, a lot of us uh, I know we we editorialized about um how how blatantly that appeared to be a, a gerrymandering issue and and the Democrats really just severely overstepped here, and I think they're paying the price for it.
4: Yeah, it's it's funny that you said that to me because I was literally just thinking about that, and I was thinking, do I bring this up because it's kind of. <laughs> but, but, but it's funny. I was literally thinking of the same thing. This, like, how nuts that first map was. Like, you're stretching this to NASA County, really? Like, just a
2: exactly. little tongue that, like,
3: kind yeah. of. You know, yeah. I find
0: that amazing, though, because it's a missed opportunity. I feel like if if the Democrats hadn't overstepped so severely, they still had the ability. I mean, the way the system was set up, I feel like the Democrats gained it a little bit because it's pretty clear that the bipartisan commission that was set up to, to redraw the districts was meant to fix this problem. But they basically just stonewalled that commission knowing that it would be thrown to the to the legislature and 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 this is what we ended up with but it just feels like such an overreach and it feels frankly appropriate that the party should pay a price for that overreach yeah.
1: I agree there's, there's got to There, there, there has to be in, in the future Somebody's got to Come up a way Come up with a way To do this Redistricting That's a little Less partisan And and I have no clue How that That's going to work Because everything Is is partisan Obviously And you know I mean let's Point the finger at the Democrats This time It's not anything That the Republicans Haven't done Um, You know in years past Or Democrats too I mean depending on, on You know who's In, in power at the Time, I think that was the whole idea of, of this nonpartisan commission that was supposed to, um, you know, supposed to come up with, you know, a, an even way of, of doing this redistricting. And it certainly um, proved that it didn't work uh, this year around. But maybe there's there's got to be another look at that. It, it's just... Um, it, it's silly that, you know, that every 10 years you're swinging one way, one way or another based you know solely on, on you know, which party thinks they're going to, you know, have a better chance of getting somebody elected in, in the district.
2: I mean, as long as you have partisans appointing the nonpartisan commission members. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, and that's exactly what happened here, I think. Uh, so, I don't know. I, I should have journalists appoint the. Uh, <laughs> well, I was
0: going to say, <laughs> have go. we, have we,
3: got, we, we st- don't have enough to do.
0: Have <laughs> we stumbled on a potential solution here, which is just to outsource redistricting to some expert in some other state that has yeah. no horse
1: in the race. Yeah. Who, who hires the expert, though? It, you know, you do it. Which, which expert do you hire? And, you know, and there's going to be one that leans one way or the other.
2: Well, well and there are people complaining good. that the court that appointed the special master <laughs> is this upstate, you know, rural Republican judge. Right. And so I, you know, I don't know. We couldn't do it.
0: I think it's funny. We ended up sort of on square one We're we're back yeah. to the way the district was drawn initially. Yeah. But quite frankly, that's probably appropriate. It's a it's a when you look at the map now. Yeah. It's a reasonable district. It includes all the stuff that comes. Yeah. It's, I mean, the representative is meant to represent the entire region and not just some sliced up version of the region. And this is a complicated region that includes people from all stripes, all political stripes. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that Tim Bishop of Southampton was the representative for the first mm-hmm. district for several terms. Tim was as left leaning. I think, as as Lee Zeldin is right leading. So the votes are out there um, for for both sides. I think it's about who activates and, and gets out to the polls every year. And that's probably as it should be. Right. Sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, It's gone back. You know, it's Otis Pike who was a Democrat from Riverhead. You had Bill Carney, who was a registered conservative. Right. Um, he represented his district. You had um, Mike Forbes who got elected as a, a Democrat and. Be, Became a Republican, or was it the other no, way? Switch the other way, right? After the Republicans took control of the House, that's right. He became yeah. a Democrat. Uh, you know, I um, So yeah, it's really feeling scroochy. It's really gone back and forth. One thing that I noticed, if you look at the um, the western edges of the first congressional district under the special masters map, they're not as jaggedy as they were. Uh, you know. They're they kind of like smooth them out, which I think is another kind of evidence of you don't really have to gerrymander to, you know, um, I think I think what the first this first Senate district map is is interesting. I, you know, that's got some interesting consequences. I mean, it's removed um, the special master's map removed um, most of Eastern, I think all of Eastern Brookhaven from the first Senate district. And now it's part of the third Senate district. So Brookhaven, uh, like Calverton and Matterville, it that lie p- parts of that that those towns that lie in um, Brookhaven Township are now part are now not in the first Senate district. So
1: so is that going to be really more more? Is that going to be more democratic leaning? Do we know know those numbers? Because I, I, I mean, that's, confess, tradi- like, that's traditionally been been a Republican leaning district, right? It,
2: it it yes, it's because it of, because of
1: that Western Brookhaven or Eastern Brookhaven, you know, portion of it and, and all that.
2: Uh you know, I don't know. It's got the town of Southold. It's got the North Shore. It's a, you yeah. know, of it's yeah, pretty it's, Republican. It's, it's a not Republican an incredibly territory.
3: densely populated area, either. Yeah,
2: there's. Not a lot of homes there but it's kind of interesting yes. because those areas kind of i think sort of relate more to like riverhead and the you know this area yeah. i i don't know i didn't talk to anybody over there so i don't know how they feel about it if they feel about it
0: i think
1: but one now, thing yeah, that now now it's going to include stony brook um university which is yes, which is very left leftly
2: potentially yeah And um, so, you know, that's kind of interesting. I didn't talk to uh, Tony Palumbo. I don't know if anybody else did to see if he had any thoughts about it. Um, And I'm also you know, we're also kind of all waiting to um, find out what's going to be with the county legislative districts as well, because that has kind of significant impacts. The map that that, again, the Democratic uh, majority tried to uh, or did adopt. Uh, before they lost control of the county legislature in December, um, shifted the Flanders, Riverside, Northampton area into the North Fork district and out of the South Fork district. So that's kind of it that has potentially interesting ramifications. I think we should mention because maybe this is one of those things that we take for granted that the the reason that this is done is because population shifts. And when they do the population count every 10 years, they have to readjust district lines to make them all sort of evenly uh, distributed, the population evenly distributed so that, you know, your your representative on the first congressional district is, is going to represent roughly the same number of people as the the House of Representatives um, member in like Buffalo.
0: It's based on population is, you know, more than more than just geography. But so talking about that first district seat, um, Denise, you sort of mentioned it, but I think it's worth emphasizing. I think one of the real impacts of this process is going to be. So we've pushed the primaries now to August, which is going to be the end of summer. This is going to be a sprint the general election for whoever the candidates are, you're only gonna have two months essentially to make your case to voters. And I, I, you know, I I think that's a real challenge considering you don't have an incumbent running again, you know, and normally I would say that benefits the incumbent significantly, but with that seat up for grabs, that's a very short period of time uh, for any candidate to make their case uh, for that district. Yeah. For the in the
2: primary, and yeah. and then you know then they get nominated in August, let's say. Yeah, I and mean, then, for the general, well, election, and then yeah. for the general, yeah,
0: we won't We're we in, won't know who the candidates are in the general election until the end, you know, until well, August. Yeah. It's, We're it's, lucky
3: it's, that this year there aren't five Democrats in the primary. <laughs>
0: That's true. That's true. It, but it is. It would have much.
3: been really difficult last year, or last it time around.
0: Interesting. It's a it's a battle up, in that I think up uh, in the air for the Democratic nomination this
1: time. Yeah, and they're and look, and we've we've mentioned this before. They're going to spend a lot of time and and money and energy just to get that nomination, and and then by the time um, one of them does. Um, you know, then, then they've, they've used a lot of, of resources that that they've had that they could have been using for, for the general election. And and I think that that's problematic too. And, you know, it's, it's always, it's the democratic process, but it's always a big fight, you know, among the Democrats of who's going to get the nomination. They spend, um, they spend a lot of money. They do a lot of advertising. Um, you know, they fight hard for, for that nomination. And, you know, again, um, you'd like to see maybe the party get, uh, you know, get get behind one candidate earlier on, and you know, and and fi- figure out who the best candidate's going to be and, and push them forward. That being said, that's the that's the process. That's the country we live in. That you know, everybody's everybody's entitled to um, to run. So in, in a
0: short in a shorter general election campaign, I wonder if there will be more of a focus on. Uh, sort of making your case with uh, jargon and, and inflammatory messages on on both sides. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wonder if that has you have less time to make a a, a big case. But I don't know. I mm-hmm. guess that's the way elections have sort of mm-hmm. been sliding the right. last. Year.
3: And I mean, yeah. it, the, uh, in the case of Carahan and Bridget Fleming, I mean, there's not a lot of air between them policy-wise either. I mean, I, I'm not sure what they're what they can do to really differentiate themselves in terms of their positions on the issues. Um
0: Denise said it used I to agree. be that Thank it you. used to be that the party leaders worked all this stuff out in advance. And I'm not sure that was necessarily better that they anointed a candidate, but it it certainly offered some more clarity heading into elections that when you didn't have these primary battles, I don't, I'm not sure which is better. I I, I don't think it's well, better. It depends to
2: have- on better for what? I mean, yeah. I, yeah. you know, better in terms of, you know, your, your political strategy and getting someone elected, I think is, you know, clearly, favors like the party machine model of, you know, the party bosses anointing a candidate, kind of like what the Republicans have done, you know. That's like a smarter political strategy. Now, you know, Nick LaLota is pretty much, you know, sitting pretty, right? Yeah. And and the Democrats are spending their money and wasting wasting air quotes resources on um, you know, fighting with each other. And so that doesn't do them any good really i don't think i mean i you know i agree i i last time we talked about this i kind of i i sort of criticized or i did i criticized uh the southern county democratic leader um for not being more like one of his predecessors dominic barinello <laughs> i can't believe i'm saying that but <laughs> you know because i had some of my own experience with dominic but um you know it's it, it,
0: it's, tempting to, say, from a it's tempting to say that the trains run on time when you have a party leader. You know, that that's the, the difference. Uh, you know, but, yeah. but yeah, I'm not and sure it's better.
2: No, you know, not, not for democracy. I mean, like what's exactly. good for partisan success is not necessarily what's good for democracy.
0: It's I think, learned, that's you know
2: quite painfully over many years now. So
0: absolutely. Um, I,
2: you know, so Rich Schaefer, I'm sorry, I said.
0: a <laughs> <laughs> rare apology from a journalist. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw with the Express News Group. My co-host is Bill Sutton, also of the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Beth Young of the East End Beacon, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local and Oliver Peterson, of uh, dancepapers.com and Oliver, uh, we want to talk about a project we've both written about in the last couple of weeks uh, that's happening in North Sea and it's a beach nourishment project on a bay beach, but the sand is going to have a little something extra in it, which is kind of interesting, and 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 is at least a test project that that we, we might see if there's some success, we might start to see it used in in some other projects. Can you tell us a little bit about what that extra something is? Sure, um, just.
4: To clarify, Tim Bolger is the one who wrote about it, but uh, we do have, yeah, it's on dancepapers.com in our uh, newspaper. Um, so yeah, this company, um, Project um, uh, Vesta, uh, I believe are the ones who uh, created um, It's this stuff called olivine. It's a mineral that um, uh, they find overseas elsewhere and it basically um, absorbs it captures carbon dioxide. Um, and what they've uh, done is sort of milled it down into um, uh, grains of sand size pieces. And, uh, and they want to use it as a, a supplemental material in the beach replenishment um, with the idea that it will um, fight climate change and absorb you know sort of be like an antacid for the ocean while also absorbing carbon dioxide and uh supposedly saving the planet in the process
0: um, you know in the to- bays it has a chance of having some impact because you have the enclosed water of the bays and and that's obviously where the water quality issues have been worst and it's a, it's a way as you said to sort of remove carbon dioxide and i think it it addresses the acidification of the water and i think that's the the goal yeah
4: yeah basically what,
0: what I found really interesting about this is this is a process that happens naturally. Um, you know the the lava based um rocks that are that are in the water leach this material out. This is just sort of a way to supercharge it by by you know grinding it down to its basic element and allowing it to be absorbed up into the water a little bit more quickly, right.
4: Yeah. yeah, I think as Tim explained it, um, it's, well, it's called coastal weathering. I said, and as uh, as Tim explained it, it's like the um, equivalent of uh, um, planting trees to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Right, so this is like uh, it's like the same idea, yeah. except that there's
3: you know. Um, fossil f- or some form of energy used to break down.
4: Well, ex- yeah, exactly. This part.
3: We, I mean, I don't know what the net net carbon impact is. I don't know if any, any, globally, I, I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone Tim talked to could give him an answer on that, right?
0: Globally, <laughs> it may like, be sort of a treadmill um, where we're yeah. using a lot of fossil fuels to, to make this happen. But locally, if it has an impact on the waters, uh, I, Beth, I'm curious, you know, I think they're looking at, I mean, we, we've talked certainly in all of our publications about the kelp industry, uh, starting to get a real foothold locally. Um, they're looking for, I don't know that they're looking for a magic bullet because, because I think nobody thinks there's actually a magic bullet for cleaning up local waters, but it's more like a throw everything at the wall and see what sticks.
3: Well, I, I think this septic rebate program would would have a really big impact if more people were taking advantage of it. Um, it's a cumbersome program. The fact that you might be paying income taxes on the grant. I mean, um, I, I'm looking at installing one of these systems myself. I have a 600-square-foot house, backs up to Reeves, the marsh next to Reeves Bay in Flanders. And it's... Um, going to be like forty thousand dollars to put a septic system in this house mm-hmm. it's yeah. It's absurd, and there you know there's grants that cover part of it, but i mean the, but traditional now the federal
0: the federal government's policy right now, as I yeah. understand it, is that that forty thousand dollar grant you're going to have to pay taxes
1: on it That's income
3: yeah it, it's not and it's not a forty thousand dollar grant The most you can get is thirty thousand Southampton town has a rebate as well. Um, and at East Hampton does as well. But the but Riverhead and Southall don't have the money because that's CPF money to to help people out in that way. Um, you know, uh, the South Fork towns, you know, luckily have a little extra money that they're putting toward water, water quality projects. Um, but, uh, you know, and and the systems are complicated. Um, Can you explain
4: what, what it is exactly, the septic system that you're talking
3: yeah, about? Yeah, these septic systems, they... Um, um, basically they reduce nitrogen which is the the food for harmful algal blooms okay. so um they kind of have these special filters in them and there's pumps and there, there are several different systems that there are out there um uh you know i mean a traditional septic system might cost Six thousand dollars, depending on the size of your house, but they're new construction. Everything that's going in in Suffolk County now has to be these new systems, Mm. Um, and um, you know uh, Stony Brook is has the Center for Clean Water Technology that's looking to kind of um, bring the cost down. But um, a lot of the places that really could benefit from it, the water table is really high. And that adds to the cost of construction. You know, even if you have a small system, if, if the hole that they dig is filling with water, they have to put in a, um, what is it, a cofferdam or whatever to keep the water out while they're working. Is, um, that,
0: is that your situation right there yeah. in Reeves Bay? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would think, but those are also the projects that are most important. You're, you're right there.
3: Yeah, this is no. like the, one of the most impaired water bodies
2: out here. But I just also there, there's an expense to, keep, to keeping it up. Right. I yeah. mean, like, it's, you know, it, it takes electricity. Yeah. It takes maintenance. It takes replacement filters. And yeah. they are also relatively new technology. I mean, they're not considered experimental anymore, but yeah. You know, have they been d- tested under every you know circumstance? Yes, um, you- I would also. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, go, go ahead. No, i was just going to say, like, I you know, I think it's kind of like a good idea, but like it really doesn't address it doesn't address commercial uses that aren't sewered at all. I mean, you know, that, there's a lot that that's still left hanging out there, and I'm afraid that a lot to really address this problem comprehensively re- requires like municipal treatment systems, either on a community basis or a bigger, yeah. you know, to do this individually like this and to put it on the backs of homeowners. Uh, yeah. I don't yeah. know so, how well that's yeah. going work out.
4: That would be bad for me is the question I have. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're putting out all this money, like if you put in yeah. solar panels, you're saving money on electric in theory, yeah. eventually, what's in it for me for doing this? Like why well, I mean,
0: especially, I mean, especially if you're getting hit with a tax bill now, it, it, what's in it for you is a higher tax
4: and higher bill. and higher. electric bills. like well, yeah, it's, a, it's considered
3: an improvement to your property that can raise your assessment as well. Um, I mean, the only reason I'm considering it is my existing septic system is failing. And frankly, you know, I live in this neighborhood of quarter acre and smaller lots. Where every every house was built in 1956, they all have Orangeburg pipes, the old clay pipes that fall apart, and like one septic ring. And they all back up to the wetlands that go straight into the bay here. And this this bay has been close to shell fishing my I think my whole life. I'm not sure. I don't I wasn't paying attention when I was a kid, but um.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> um it, yeah. You know, and this is where the diamondback terrapins were washing up on the shore a couple of, uh, I guess it's several years now. <laughs> um,
0: there was a big uh, fish kill uh, at it, one point too, yeah, right?
3: fish kills. And that's a big, that's a big dissolved oxygen problem, which, which these, Olivine things that started this conversation could address. Um, but yeah, I mean, the uh, the terrapins were dying because of um, this really toxic algae bloom that we had this one year that was, um, in, I believe, it was primarily in Meeting House Creek. And yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yep. Yeah.
2: And, and yeah, James, Port,
1: James, Port, a bunch of, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's yeah. So, so to Oliver's point and to Denise's point, Beth, I mean, you're, you are an environmentally conscious person. So when, when you're thinking about replacing your septic, you, you, you want the better septic system.
0: I,
3: we don't have a choice anymore.
0: You have to can't, replace your system. It has and to be the new system.
2: Yeah.
0: No, so I any could,
2: significant no, any significant uh additions or renovations right. that require but you know by the camp for the county health department. But and I, the
1: I other think the thing I think Beth, I, I think you could grandfather in couldn't right. even an older septic. Yeah. You could you could yeah. put in a, an older septic system. Um, and 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 Ali's point that so there's there's no real incentive for you to do this if you're going to be out of pocket ten grand to exactly. do this and not getting anything back, and that goes to Denise's point where where the local governments have to step in and and have to either 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 help out with more with with these systems or come up with some kind of municipal septic that, you know, that, that solves yeah. the problem. I know they're talking I, I, about sewer district in, in Flanders, Riverside, but they've been talking about that for as long <laughs> as I've been on Long yeah. Island. And, you know, and that hasn't happened yet.
3: And I don't think anyone uh, east of one of five would would
1: would be part of that.
3: They'd be out there picketing probably yeah. <laughs>
1: the,
2: the The other problem with this patchwork approach, uh, you know, face it, that's what this is, is that it's really not targeting, as you pointed out earlier, the areas that really need it the most. I mean, it's not targeting the areas that are like, you know, very high depth of water, you know, water table is very high shoreline areas where, you know, these older, older construction with the pipes that are crumbling, you know, it's not targeting like it's not prioritizing. That's what I'm trying to say, I guess. Yeah. It's not prioritizing areas.
0: I think part of the the root of the problem too, Beth, is you talked about it. It's considered an improvement to your property. It'll raise your assessment, but having one of these systems doesn't improve your quality of life in any way as a homeowner. (laughs) It probably doesn't increase the value of your house only in the sense that significantly, you've, anyway, you've you've right. been required to put it in. So at the federal level, they're going to need to address how a grant to do this, which is something that's essential to helping to clean up the bays, can be exempted from from taxes and not considered yeah. income. There, and there's another yeah. aspect to this that I want to touch on, which is so. This will bring us back around to the Olivine conversation that we started it. There's really two things in play here. Even if tomorrow we were able to replace all of the failing septic systems along the bays and everywhere else, if we, were, if we made, waved a magic wand and put everybody on municipal sewers, there's probably about 50 years worth of effluent working its way steadily into the local waters, you know, the, into the, the base system that's going to be there for the foreseeable future and needs to be cleaned up on the other end. Thus, you have efforts like the olivine. And, and yeah. I mean, this is, this is not, this is a problem of a rising tide of effluent that, that we've got to address both by cutting off the supply and addressing the impact in the waters
3: yeah and I think you know w- w- one of the other issues that really has been going unsaid so far but isn't going to be unsaid forever is you know i mean the increased sewering in, in these system i mean I have a two bedroom house once I put the system in. I'm allowed to have a four bedroom house because the minimum system designs, according to the Suffolk County Health Department, is for four bedrooms. Mm. So there are plenty of people who have little houses. If they have little houses and they put these systems in, they can automatically double the number of bedrooms in their houses. So you'll have, it's going to totally change the character of neighborhoods if, you know, who doesn't want to have
0: a house with more
3: bedrooms? Haven't? Right. I don't
0: no, but that's really interesting. I,
3: you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know that they've really thought this through.
2: I mean, it's still local zoning regulation though. I mean, yeah. you know, so you might need to get variances or try for a variance or something, but yeah, I mean, that's yeah. the thing people, you know, are wary of sewage treatment plants and sewer, you know, wastewater systems for that reason and public water, which yeah. they desperately need, but they're wary of it because it, it's a growth inducing um event. Yeah. you know
0: the thing about it too, is Beth, you may not be sort of interested in going through the process of adding two more bedrooms to your house and going through the lengthy regulatory process, you'd have to do that. But I'll bet there's a buyer out there yeah. who no. would be more than happy to, to take yeah. your property off your hands and and do that and maximize um, the building on your property.
1: And um, that, and, that, that being said, maybe you could build an accessory apartment and and help the affordable <laughs> housing crisis.
3: Well, I'm, I'm here in my garage so you can see it's still a garage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> unlike (laughs) every other garage on the (laughs) east end
0: and a a day bed and i think you can get about 1500 bucks a month
3: (laughs) but then where where will i do my zoom with you
0: (laughs) So this is Behind the Headlines on WLIW-FM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Beth Young of the East End Beacon, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and Oliver Peterson of DansPapers.com. So I did want to talk briefly about uh, Belltown in up in riverhead um tell me about what's going on up there denise there's a proposal now for uh declaring it a heritage area
2: right yeah the town board actually has uh, uh declared it a, a, a local heritage area and um to on um, saturday which for us is tomorrow they are the town is um actually posting, uh, you know, the heritage area sign. It's the first heritage area in, uh, the town of Riverhead. And it's just a sort of a, you know, it's, it's a historic thing. I, you know, it's like a historic. What makes it historic? Because, sorry, I'm looking for the, I'm looking for the document (laughs) as I like, can you tell? Okay. (laughs) What makes it historic is, um, that um, about a hundred years ago, um, four African American brothers migrated to Riverhead, settled in Aquabog, and uh, they came from Powhatan, Virginia, which so many uh, members of the Black community in Riverhead um, originate from, and um, they developed it as into a, a self-contained, uh, predominantly African American and Native American community. Um, they had shops and businesses there and, and they divided 16 acres into 32 residential lots that they sold to family and friends. And those lots today include the areas that are now uh, surrounding um, Bell Avenue, Hobson Drive and Zion Street that um, come off of uh, Hubbard, Hubbard Avenue uh, near, as you said earlier, the old entrance to the uh, Indian Island uh, County Park um, And um, the granddaughter of uh, one of these uh, gentlemen uh, kind of inspired, you know, requested that the town do this. And um, she is uh, the founder of the African-American Cultural Educational Festival, which um, is an organization that um, focuses on African local and and beyond African-American history and culture. Um, it, and she's they're going to have um, uh, they're going to dedicate a sign there and they're going to have uh, some performances tomorrow um, and it should be a, a neat thing. So they're, they're doing this uh, tomorrow morning.
0: Beth, I feel like the the region has been slowly but steadily coming to terms and, and acknowledging for the first time in the last decade or so, they've begun acknowledging the role that the, the black community has played in the development of the East. And there's a lot of things happening on a lot of different levels. You have the Plain Sight project that our friend David mm-hmm. Rattray is involved with. Mm-hmm. Um, you have uh, the Sands neighborhoods uh, getting that recognition recently. Um, it, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's been an untold story for a very long time, the, the black communities that have been a, a, just an enormous part of the development of the East End.
3: Absolutely, yeah, and um, uh, also the uh, the former barbershop in the, in the mm-hmm. beach, yeah, right, in right, right around the corner the village, from you yeah. guys. Um, And uh, you know, it was it was so great going to the opening there and hearing um, everyone talking about the. Uh, the heritage of, of entrepreneurship um, in the black community and really how that's centered around um, barber shops, but also um, uh, innovative uh, barbering supplies that weren't available and just finding the people to make these things. Um, uh, and really, you know, I mean, if you if you can't if you can't find a way in a society in which you're a minority to get ahead in. uh a white owned business, start your own business, create your own culture. So there's so much innovation um, that that is out there in the black community that, you know, I mean, we all of us here are white and we aren't really a part of that culture and may not know it at all. But I mean, I'm sure all the black residents of the East End know. And um, and and um, now they're getting a chance to tell their stories and people are listening. which uh, is long overdue, but it's Absolutely. good that it's happening. Um, but I think on the North Fork, a lot of this, a, a lot of a lot of people who came here were farm laborers. And, um, you know, we still don't tell the stories of farm laborers. Yeah. People that's, who are working now,
0: I think. The, and, and it echoes sort of the national debate over how we tell the stories about um, how black labor helped build the United States and, and its economy. And, and that's certainly true on the East End. And our friend Steve Wick has written extensively about that, that, that you know, so, so much of the black community here was rooted in, in migrant labor. There was that was at least where it started. But that right. was an enormous part of how this region was able to grow during its agrarian period. It, it became successful in large part because of these men and women who were, who were willing to do that work um it's it's overdue oliver telling these stories isn't it
4: uh yeah i, I think i think so yeah um just uh, another I just this just reminds me this um we just had a a short little post on the website about this uh have you are you guys familiar with the long island migrant camps dust for blood book Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, came out last year. Um, yeah, that guy uh, Mark Torres is doing a talk on June 11th um, about about all this stuff. Um, so that should yeah, be interesting. and
3: actually, just up the street from Belltown, at the corner of. Uh, Edgar and Hubbard, and goes down to Meetinghouse Creek. There's still the remnants of one of the farm labor camps that um, Mr. Torres talks about in the books, in the book, and and that and I think probably a lot of the people who lived there were the customers of some of the the establishments in Belltown because it's literally like a uh, tenth of a mile up the road.
2: Right.
3: Um, and the buildings are still there. You can see them. They're a little bit uh, overgrown, but the buildings are still there.
0: When you talk about the history of a region, if you leave out an enormous chunk of that history, I don't think you're doing anybody justice. And so, this is—I I think we're playing catch up here, Denise. I—I I, I feel like it's—it's it's, you know—it's been years and years and years. This should have been integrated into the the story we tell about. Why the east End grew we're we're playing catch up a little bit,
2: yeah, and you know I mean we've talked about this in a pat in the past. it's um a function of like who's doing the storytelling who are the who are the historians and um I you know you have to wonder also if the lack of inclusion in the local history, in the story of our local history is sort of a subconscious. Um, Reckoning recognition of um, its ugliness. You know, I mean, yeah, these people, uh, you know, they were willing to do this work and they came here and they migrated and they they went back and forth and then they stayed and they lived in these labor camps, you know, but it's not a pretty story. It's not a pretty history. I mean, it's a story of um, exploitation really. I mean, um, in in, a, in some very significant ways and, and exploitation and segregation. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that I think the people who write the history and the people who are looking back on it today really don't want to acknowledge and recognize. Um, and I would say, you know, things that still continue to this day, not only with the, the black population, but, you know, More pointedly, perhaps, with the um, population who are now largely the farm laborers that are, you know, and and other types of of laborers that are doing the work that other people don't necessarily want to do.
0: And yet there's an echo there. I feel like it's a purely American story that that you have a group of people who created these entrepreneurial efforts as well as they, as, you know, as they arrived. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true in the Latino community as well, locally. Um, how much more of an American story can you tell about, about yeah. a group of people who, who come in with all of these, these disadvantages and still make something positive out of it? I mean, I think it's something that the entire community should celebrate instead of being mm-hmm. afraid of, but I think you're right. Denise. I think it carries, it carries a lot of pain with it. Um, uh,
2: that's the only way people who are, you know, c- could get ahead. People in that position, also, I think, as mm-hmm. Beth just alluded to, you know, um, and, and that is that's true for so many immigrant, um, you know, populations throughout our history, and um, you know, I but I think that the period of assimilation and the you know and repression uh, has just been much long much longer because of. Um, uh, race differences.
0: I've always, yeah. I've always been struck by you know the phrase that's used all the time is "Well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps." Mm-hmm. You know that's that's a phrase that's used. Stop and think about that phrase for a second. That's literally impossible to do. You cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's physically impossible to do that. And so there's a certain irony in that too that that the that the onus was always put on the disadvantaged people to fix things in a way that they couldn't possibly do. Um, They didn't have boots. Yeah. (laughs) And and that's absolutely. (laughs)
2: Yeah. It's like, you know, you gotta have boots.
0: Yep. But this is behind the headlights of I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. Our panelists today are Beth Young, Denise Civiletti, and Oliver Peterson. Um, let's change gears a little bit, Oliver, and talk about um, you keep an eye on the pop culture uh, presence of, of mm-hmm. the East End, and we have yet another uh reality series coming right
4: we do indeed it's um
0: you sound thrilled
4: (laughs) kind of of amazing i mean it just sort of this one you know they uh, we got a the press release about it um you know uh, earlier this month and um i was surprised just because you know i hadn't heard anything about it being shot or anything and 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 uh, but yeah, this so this is uh, uh, going to be on Prime Video, uh, which is Amazon Prime. But I guess they really like to be called Prime Video. We're told um, uh, for July release it's called Forever Summer Hamptons, um, what they're calling a docu soap, and it's, uh, it's, <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> it's oh a docu soap. Yes, yes. Um, and it's <laughs> a, uh, about um, a coming-of-age docu I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, what the, I'll give you the, the, the quick, and dirty blurb. Coming-of-age docu-soap set against the idyllic backdrop of the Hamptons about a group of college kids from widely different backgrounds, from wealthy New York City kids who descend for the summer to the humble townies. Oh, Uh, the humble Uh, Uh, times Oliver. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I don't have, um, I have a screener. I haven't watched it. I just got it and I haven't had a chance to watch it with everything, uh, going on from Memorial day issue and whatnot. But, um, uh, they, the, the promotional images showed, uh, some of the, uh, stars wearing um dockers shirts um so i believe that they're all working at dockers um these guys had the dockers on the rocks which is the dockers food truck so sort of able to glean that and uh, that's in like,
0: east east quad right that's the yeah long time summer favorite indeed um but uh one of the
4: reps from from uh, amazon prime or prime video told me um that there a lot of this also takes place in montauk um i was surprised he's considering this they're working in east quad but that's what they say well,
3: what do they know
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you know it, it, occurs me, it, it occurs to me that this may be a coordinated effort the restaurants are having trouble getting people to work at their restaurants maybe hey you can come start a reality show while you're washing dishes and taking sure. orders is, is a perk that's exciting
3: has, has have any of you ever heard anyone around here use the word "townie"?
0: No. <laughs> yes, and I will. I'm, I mean, oh my- I. Only after coming out of a showing of Mystic Pizza.
3: Yeah, I uh, I called <laughs> one of my friends from Amagansett town. He once and he almost punched me. He said,
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. "That's like that. from
3: the Cape or something." I, I don't know. It,
4: it's definitely a thing. I, I, I I've lived out here full time since I was uh, ten years old, eight, nine, ten years old. But I lived in New York City growing up as a child, and we had a house out here, and um, and. You know, we actually were members of the Maidstone Club. Our financial situation changed quite a bit over the years. But anyway, uh, the point is, is that, yes, that that word was definitely used among among city people who were. Uh, uh, OK, yeah, not, not being a city person, I never heard it. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it certainly was. I think it's also like a, a lot of kids who go to prep school, you know, these uh, boarding schools, they they use that term, too, because it's like the, the people who live. You know, if you go to, say. <clears throat> Exeter or Millbrook or Choate or one of these schools, <laughs> the kids that live in these schools, they call the kids who live in who actually live in the towns where these schools are townies. Also, so that's like A derogatory too. Yes. I mean, right? Those you
2: are know? the kids who
4: wear oh, the yeah. people hunting hats. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this is going to be, you know, I, uh, when I I told the person at, at, at Amazon, you know, I said our readers are going to love this stuff whether they love to hate it or love it. Right. <laughs> A lot of people hate watching it. Um, but I mean, there are
0: so many of these shows right now. I mean, it's it's remarkable. It's, it's actually, I, this summer, I'm going to try and keep track of the number of times I run into camera crews when I'm out and about because I, that happened last summer. Um, you know, going to just to grab lunch at Union Bun and Burger, Union uh, Burger down the street from from our office. And, uh, you know, suddenly there's a crew there from I think it was from the Montauk Beach House folks. And I love that. The, the celebrity status that these people have that I wouldn't be able to pick out of a lineup. I've never seen any <laughs> of these people in my life, but they are true celebrities. And by the way, had friends in from, from outside the state for that lunch, and they could not have been more excited to, wow. to, to have seen uh, one of these filming, you know, the, the, the place taking place. But Oliver, you've had the view then from the city kid and from the townie, because you're a townie all the way now, right?
4: I'm sure. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I mean, I you know, I went to spring school and from fifth grade through eighth grade in Southampton High School. And, you know, so yeah, I've been here um for sure. Uh yeah.
0: So you have a view
1: from the inside of that <laughs> cultural inside
0: cultural of everything. that takes they, they,
1: they could hire you as they could hire you as a consultant. You're almost you at a, home
0: one, everywhere. A, out there. I don't think there's as many townies left as there used to be. Let's stop many. saying the word townie. If I hear this word again, <laughs> I'm going to punch myself in, in order to take this away from it. Um, I, I don't think there's as many people who qualify because it's getting, I mean, people who work a lot of those jobs now drive in from a very far distance. They're not right. local residents.
3: Well, the guy who punched, threatened to punch me in the face lives in Long Island City now.
0: Well, there, you there you go. go. So he he's a, No, okay, because that's a he's long.
3: A, he's a different kind of town, you know.
0: <laughs> a different community. He's a, It's it's amazing the way the 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 tension of the the country is on this region all the time, and we're able to provide entertainment, Oliver. Um, yeah, don't
3: send any of it to the North Fork. Yeah,
0: oh, gonna, gonna
4: they got pitchforks next. up there. It's going to be next, and they're you know, <laughs> I know I, the North Fork is terrified. I, I, I
1: <laughs> hey, we I, should we should start our own show. I mean, you know, kids kids <laughs> working at a local winery. Oh, uh, the, the North Fork, and yeah, we can First sell that. We yeah. can sell that. Country pandemic.
0: wineries. Yes. The pres- the pres- the, the
3: scenes from the Uber. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's
1: a it's a very different it's a I've got the tagline. Hampton's too. ride share, Beth. You can do right. Hampton's You're ride share. That's a show. There you go.
0: For the winery show, it's a very different world depending on which end of the bottle. Uh, there you yeah. go. That's how we can pitch that. Well let's let's get together and no. just sort of workshop. The North, the the like North yeah. Fork, yeah. The North
3: fork will run me out of town like they did to the Walt Well Whitman. It'll be bad. <laughs>
0: Well, we we're they out got no arms. room for that. We, we have to find a project because we're out of time uh, doing this today. So uh, this was a fun conversation, guys. Thank you. Uh, thank I want to thank uh, our panelists today, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and Oliver Peterson of DancePapers.com. Thank you, guys. We appreciate you coming up uh, for a conversation this morning. Okay. And thank you, as always, to Bill Sutton, my co-host. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, we will see you next week on Behind the Headlines here on WLIWFM.